Hello, dear listener, and welcome to episode 70 of Making It Women in Film, the last episode of this season produced by Bonnie Abra and LS Films. I'm your host, Devita, and this podcast, I sit down with women working across the film and TV industry to hear all about their craft, career, and vigorous resilience. And today, for our last conversation, I sat down with creative producer Brianna Picado to talk about how movies shape our lives. And for the roundtable at the end, Lauren and I had a little celebratory drink and reminisced over what this season has meant to us and our greatest takeaways from it. So why don't you go pour yourself forth and grab a tea, grab a coffee, something nice and sparkly. Whatever it is, I just want to thank you for having been on this journey with us. Now enjoy. Here's Brianna. So, who is Brianna? I'm a creative producer. I've been working in the creative industries since 2014 when I set up a multidisciplinary arts festival for emerging artists and creatives in Edinburgh. I've always been a creative person ever since I was little and I even find that phrase a bit funny because I think everyone's creative. I know that not everyone kind of accesses that all the time but I grew up in a family that was very much into the arts. My grandpa was an amateur community actor. He did voiceovers. He was in a few TV series in the States as an extra, but you know, did that almost as a hobby rather than a a day job. And my mom trained as a ballerina and uh, trained at one of the first historically back ballet schools in the United States of America that's still there today. And my grandmother was an English teacher. My uncle played drums. My dad um, studied architecture and design. So I'd often wake up in the mornings and see sketches and designs that he'd leave on the kitchen table. But again, that wasn't his kind of full-time profession. But I have always loved dance, loved painting, loved music, loved film. And that's kind of carried me throughout my adult life, though I started off studying sustainable development. So I'm always thinking about the impact the arts can have on the climate crisis, on social justice and change, on world building, creating a society that we love, that reduces harm, that's fair, that's equitable and ethical. And from the time I set up the arts festival, I worked in the creative industries across many, many different aspects of it. I worked for the National Theatre of Scotland and theatre. I worked for Custom Lane, a Scotland centre for design and making. And I've always worked on creative projects with other artists, including close friends and other producers and visual artists like Visual Arts Scotland um, and this incredible magazine called Boom Saloon to the collective which was set up by my friend that runs the magazine The Delicate Rebellion and that's a space for women in the creative industries all over the world. So all of the work I've done has been really guided by people that want to make positive change and want to democratize democratize creativity for good which is what Boom Saloon magazine does Um, and I have in the past worked as creative director of Fringe of Colour Film Festival. I do a lot of work now working with Africa in Motion Film Festival, um, the Glasgow um, GMAC, Glasgow Moving, kind of, I think that's film archive. Um, and yeah, diversity in film. So I'm doing a lot of work around supporting film and filmmakers. And part of my career has also been working with an incredible Edinburgh-based video production team called High Tide Media as well. 
very long introduction, but that's some of what I've been doing in I mean, the creative you've industries. You've done so many things, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, the introduction's going to be long. I went onto your LinkedIn, and there was like 42 entries, and I was like, oh, <laughs> God, this woman does not stop. <laughs> very true. But let's roll back. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Let's let's roll back the film a little bit. Um, twenty years ago, where were you, and what was your relationship with film like? Because I know you talked about dancing and all the just like the creativeness, you know, the kind of expression through the arts. Mm-hmm. But where did film come in for you? What a great time to go back to. Twenty years ago, I was in school. I was I had just started, or I was just about to start at a new school, and. Film was so significant to me at that time for many reasons. So if we go back to 20 years ago, I'll say we'll we'll go back to 19 years ago. Um, There was a real representation and kind of resurgence of rock and roll films. So I'm sure you'll remember Freaky Friday coming out, School of Rock coming out, Lindsay Lohan, Jack Black. And I was at school, as I mentioned, I was around 11 and I'd seen some of those films come out and I was on the playground at recess with my best friends. And I was like, let's start a rock band. <laughs> and I was like, let's do this. And I asked for a guitar for Christmas. I think my friend Natalie also asked for a guitar for Christmas. I got some ridiculous, and I'm, I'm not judging my parents. Like, you know, they asked, I asked for a guitar. They were probably thinking, what's Brianna up to now? What's the next thing she's doing now? So I got this Costco guitar and I mention it because it was a Fender Starcaster came with an amplifier and it's now 20 years later because I, I love my electric guitar it was my first guitar it will always have a you know special place in my heart but I think about that guitar and think you know it was a Fender but it was it was not in particularly fancy or particularly known make and I found out recently I was going to buy another guitar recently and I was at Guitar Guitar in Glasgow and I was speaking to someone they were like what's what was your first <clears throat> excuse me I was speaking to someone and they were like what was your first guitar and I said oh a Fender Starcaster and the person working there goes <laughs> really a Fender Starcaster. And I kind of was looking around kind of thinking, what is this person talking to me? And they were like, that's a, that's a great guitar. And I'm thinking to myself, this Costco guitar is a great guitar. And it turns out some lead guitarist of some indie band plays that guitar. And now it's become like a really rare, unique guitar part of guitar lore. So that's just a little aside about that guitar experience, which kind of crack, <laughs> cracks me up now. I'm like, what? what is, what's happened? Like literally what's happened? Okay, sure. So I had this Fender Starcaster and we started a band. And so much of music and the music that I was influenced by, I grew up on the Beatles. I grew up on Bossa Nova. My dad was from Angola. My mom, you know, we grew up in R&B and soul, um, a bit of jazz, though I've never really taken to jazz, but that was playing in my house a lot. And I was the one as a teenager listening to new metal, emo, hardcore metal, punk rock and alternative rock music and I think I used to wake up in the morning to Good Charlotte's like first album I think and play it on my boombox on loudspeaker and I think my mom probably wanted to throw me out the window but she didn't and I mentioned this time because I started at this new school my parents separated in 2004 and film is what got me through that period like I would spend my Friday nights going, walking home from school, 
there was a VHS and DVD rental shop called Potomac Video underneath our apartment building. So it was a big transition time. I moved from the suburbs in this in a house to a two bedroom apartment with my mom. And my dad was still around, but he shortly moved back to Angola after about a year or two. And I would go to Potomac Video basically spend like 20 minutes there the guys in the shop knew me they knew I'd come in every Friday night and I'd pick two films and I'd go upstairs to my room and you know I had my own VHS player DVD player I would get some takeaway often sushi or some Chinese food from again a local shop around the corner and they knew me as well knew my order I'd come in on Friday night I'd pay ten dollars and I'd go get my VHS and then I'd go to my room and I'd close the door and I'd watch films every Friday night and when I think about that period of my life I think I spent a lot of time processing emotions through that I remember a film called Kolya I think that was about um a gentleman in Eastern Bloc in Eastern Europe who I think somehow found an orphan and was looking after him and it was about their story. I watched a lot of independent films and also I would bring films home from school. So two very significant films that I saw that year from, you know, that were shown to me by my English teacher, which are two classics that I love. One was the film Baraka, which I don't know if you know Baraka very well, but, you know, Baraka I think was very revolutionary when it came out, it came out in 1992 because it's a film that has no narrative. So it presents, you know, a footage of people, places and things from around the world. Director was Ron Frick. Um, and as I said, it came out in 1992 and it was kind of a spectacle around kind of um, natural and technological realms. It kind of shows the gravity and the expanse of being human and patterns, sounds, it's stunning, it's a visual feast. And something that was so significant about that film is there is a scene of a kind of meat production facility and an egg production facility. And these beautiful, cause it's so colorful. So these vibrant clips and scenes of these tiny little fuzzy yellow chicks on the assembly line, right? Being processed to kind of basically be grown to you know, be eaten later. And I saw that. I mean, I knew about this, but again, this was a real revolution in the US around that time around sustainable living, ethical living, healthy food. Um, Super Size Me came out, the documentary that was, you know, so impactful at the time about McDonald's and obesity. So there was a lot of context around that time. And I watched that film and I swear to you, it was one of those moments where instantly I was like, I'm vegetarian forget this, I'm not eating meat anymore, I'm done. So as an 11 year old, I became a vegetarian, which I don't think was necessarily that radical or revolutionary at the time, but I wasn't raised veggie. And I think my family for the most part was supportive, but the men in my family, excluding my dad, who grew up on a very meaty diet, we ate, you know, my dad was a great chef at home, great cook, so was my mom, but we'd have lots of different meats all the time. When people ask me why I'd become a vegetarian, I don't think at the time I would have pinpointed that film I think I would have just said to them, I've eaten so much meat up until this point in my life, I never need to eat it again. That was the joke, right? But it was the image from that film, yeah. Baraka, that really changed my perspective. And the second film, just That's to kind of, yeah, the second film, just to share kind of the second film that had a massive impact, was we were studying, as I'm sure a lot of people do at the age of 11, 12, Shakespeare for the first time. I know that's not everyone's uh, educational journey, but it was mine. 
And at my school, we read. (laughs) (laughs) At my school, we read the classics. So I think we read A Midsummer Night's Dream in seventh grade, and oh no, other way around. In seventh grade, we read Romeo and Juliet, and in eighth grade, it was A Midsummer Night's Dream. So seventh grade, there I was, uh, eleven years old, near I think nearly maybe twelve at this point. This was all the same year, all the same time period. My teacher, English teacher, showed us Zeffirelli's version of Romeo and Juliet. Now, we could have watched uh, the Leonardo DiCaprio version. We didn't. We watched this classic. And I remember being so struck, not only by the acting, um, but there was something in this that really communicated the innocence of Romeo and Juliet's love. Because you think about kind of the later version that stars Leo DiCaprio, and there's something very, it's modernized, it's very raw, it's very gritty. There's not a lot of innocence necessarily around the two of them as characters. But Franco Zeffirelli's version, was just really stunning because it in so many ways communicated this innocence, this love, this journey of, you know, this young Capulet and Montague. And I was such a romantic that I asked my teacher for that film and I think I kept it for two weeks. And I don't know how many times I watched it, but I'm notorious for rewatching films. I mean, friends and family, and I spend most of my time watching films. If you ask me, is it podcasts? Is it listening to music? Is it TV series? It's definitely film that I spend my most time, you know, watching and consuming and processing. But I have family members that would constantly just be like, how can you rewatch the same thing over and over again? <laughs> and I have some other significant films I can point to later if we get to them that I have watched. I cannot tell you how many times. But so that is kind of my relationship to to film. And and when I was very, very young, you know, my dad used to joke that um, TV saved him because when he was at home, he worked from home looking after me and just could not keep me entertained. He'd put on a film and I grew up watching James Bond films very young, which probably wasn't that age appropriate or um, Austin Powers. <laughs> Um, but I was I was constantly kind of around and exposed to film through my grandpa, who was always watching film because he was studying things for his plays or we were watching TV series he was in for voiceovers. But everyone in my family really loves it. That's that's so interesting. And I mean, it just goes to show the impact that we have, like that movies we have, especially that we watch in an early age have on us you know it's <laughs> I mean from school of rock to you know becoming a vegetarian it's it's all there you know it's also interconnected with the path our lives take yes completely uh, yeah I think yeah I also think that Romeo of Juliet Romeo and Juliet is an interesting one because I think it's one that's so up to interpretation and can really depend on the way it's approached even if it's you know really the same core um even if it's reading the play as it was written i think people have such different ways of looking at it um and it's such a key part of film really is how we digest uh the stories and and, and the different perspectives we we can put on it you know i think there's a lot that goes on to what the filmmaker intends but in the end it's a movie a movie is watched uh, and you can't control what a peop- what a person thinks about it when they watch it. Um, you exactly. can do your best, but you can't. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so when... <laughs> 
And so when did it click for you that this was something you wanted to do, that this was something you wanted to incorporate in your life more than just like as a hobby of watching it, that this was something you wanted to, you know, get involved with? So I can answer that question through film again, because the time I was describing where I was in a rock band, you know, my parents had separated, I started at a new school. I call that the beginning of my perpetual weirdening, right? It's this whole notion of marching to the beat of your own drum. So I was a full goth at that point, fishnets, combat boots, black fingernail polish. But you know, that was the time that was like that early 2000s emo period that many of us went through. And I just remember in some ways kind of going through this process of always being really comfortable with myself, but going through that real uncertainty and horribleness of being a teenager going through puberty, right? And a film that really grounded me in that moment because there was that kind of punky side to me, but there was also the hopeless romantic. And I would watch most Saturday mornings, again, me with my rituals. I'd wake up on Saturday, make breakfast, sit in front of the TV in the living room. And I would watch Joe Wright's Pride and Prejudice with Kira Knightley. And that film, which is controversial, not everyone likes it in terms of uh, the Jane Austen um, canon. You know, people will say the British version that was came out earlier, um, that's the older version and kind of a separate series, you know, multi-part series um, that that basically starts Colin Firth as Mr. Darcy is the version you're supposed to like, right? <laughs> and so I remember watching that film and being so struck by two things. Joe Wright's visual storytelling alongside the score that goes with that film that is so iconic and so stunning really kind of captured my heart and imagination because of the symmetry in that film. You look at every shot and it could be a photograph, it could be a painting, the color schemes, the cinematography, everything about it was just so rich and vibrant and colorful and intentional. And I'd maybe at that point started to watch some Wes Anderson films, but Wes Anderson hadn't gotten to the same kind of level of notoriety at that point. So his style and cinematic style in terms of color, in terms of caricatures of um, and set design, in terms of framing and shots was maybe not as well recognized. But that Joe Wright film, I remember looking at this and going, this is, there's nothing like film. And I was already quite a visual person, but I thought to myself, I want to, to make this. And when you asked your question about what made me decide I wanted to do this for a living and do it professionally, they're still there at that point and later on in my life, so much imposter syndrome, because I told you about my family members who, especially being a black family, especially coming from working class origins, you know, you didn't do the arts and creative industries as a career. That wasn't something that people of color and black people necessarily had opportunities to do. I didn't necessarily feel those barriers personally when I was growing up in that age, but 
I think, you know, we hold a lot of intergenerational stories and trauma and belief systems. And I was still getting direct messages of, yeah, you can be in this rock band. I mean, we were quite successful. We played Battle of the Bands. We recorded. You can paint, Brianna. I, I won National Arts Awards, you know, Arts and Letters Awards for Scholastic and, and did all this painting and photography. But it was still very much like, that's your weird side. That's your odd side. That's your creative side. But please don't rely on that for a profession. And so I applied to some art schools, but when it was time to go to university, I kind of did the quote unquote more serious thing. And I ended up studying international relations and sustainable development. But back to that whole question of when did I know? I think I always knew. I think there's always been a storyteller and a filmmaker in me. And I have so many significant moments in my life. I remember through film, through music, and very much kind of watching those films really impacted me I remember watching a film about surfing surfing is also something I really love called into the blue and again you can compare some of these moments of popular films to less popular films so um we also we had blue crush as well which was a massive surf film right that was super popular but into the blue was a surf documentary about big wave surfers that were mostly men so what I would say here as well is when we look at famous filmmakers directors um, screenwriters a lot of them are still men and I know that we're moving out of that period but I think actually in terms of what was really contributing to my imposter syndrome and maybe it's not a thought that was fully realized in my head it was like I love film I love the arts I think at one point later in my 20s I wrote down a list of things I wanted to do before I died and one of them was write a book which is what I'm doing now and another was make a film you know and so that's always been in my subconscious as something I wanted to do but it was only then that I actually materialized that and wrote it down and was like, I'm doing this, you know. But back to what I was saying about the misogyny of this. So around the time, you know, Joe Wright uh, directed Pride and Prejudice with starring Kira Knightley. Kira Knightley had been in another film that was, you know, her um, breakthrough film, which of course we all know was Bend It Like Beckham. And that film was very much about the misogyny of women playing football and being in sports. And again, around that time of me being a teenager, watching Baraka, seeing Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet's, being in a rock band, watching these films, School of Rock and Freaky Friday, um, being at this new school, I also started at this new school and I decided I wanted to play American tackle football. And I think I was the second person in the school's history that had ever attempted it. And there was this incredible head of our athletic department who was a queer woman um, and she supported me. But everyone around me was like, you're going to get hurt. What are you doing? But I was new to the school and I definitely kind of danced the beat of my own drum. People were like, yeah, go ahead and try it. And I did last the season. But I guess what I'm getting at is that determination or that kind of belief that, you know, I can do things or, you know, things aren't just for a certain type of person or a certain gender, et cetera, has always been in me. But I think there's also this kind of rebellious attitude I have when someone tells me I can't do something that those are fighting words. That's like motivation for me to do it. So I guess what I'm getting at is when it comes to film, when it comes to visual storytelling, when it comes to this world and the creative industries, I think the film industry is very particular and very different to visual arts or dance or design or anything else. And breaking into it can feel really overwhelming, but then there are so many ways to do that. And I'm surrounded by people 
that just by accident of being in the arts and creative industries are making that happen. And I'd say that it was in my mid twenties that I had that moment of not realization, moment of actualization of, yes, this is something I will do. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like that actualization. Yes. Yes. It's an interesting journey for everyone. You said that, you know, you study sustainability and uh, international relations instead of something, you know, uh, more arts related. When, like, what what was your first job then in, in the arts? What was your first project that you took on? So just to give some context to that question, as you said, I studied sustainability and international relations, and I was the first in a cohort of four to study sustainable development at the University of Edinburgh. Three of us graduated in 2014. We were real trailblazers. The degree program had never existed at the university or in the university's history. And I mentioned this in relation to the arts and your question, because I very quickly, after four years of studying the climate crisis, as we were looking at it from a social, economic and political standpoint, but a lot of what we were studying was the media and the narratives around the climate crisis and what was stopping change, you know, because we obviously knew that climate scientists had known about climate change or global warming. I don't think that term is very helpful anymore since the seventies, you know, there's, um, all sorts of, it was the Council of Europe, I believe, you know, there are all sorts of meetings, Kyoto Protocol, all sorts of things happening on a global level about the climate crisis. Scientists were screaming, going, here's the data, we need to stop this, right? But it hasn't stopped. A lot of those factors are capitalism, people holding on to power, the power and lobby of the oil and gas industry, fossil fuel industry, there's so many factors, right? But what we started to look at was what is the narrative around the climate crisis, right? Why can't we get behavior change or policy change or systems change? And what I started to kind of focus on was behavioral psychology on pro-environmental behavior change and also this whole notion of storytelling, right? Because Climate scientists, I think sometimes, I don't want to generalize, but being scientists think, well, storytelling doesn't matter. The facts will will be enough. The facts will be convincing. But we know, you know, when it comes to carbon footprint, BP invented the whole notion of an individual's carbon footprint as a marketing ploy to get people to, you know, divert their attention away from the oil companies and massive companies, you know, contributing to the majority of the world's pollutants and focused instead on their own individual impact, which was a bit silly given, you know, it's important and significant, but it's disproportionate to the majority of these emissions, right? So thinking about that, my whole understanding of the climate crisis and approach to the world has been about what narratives are we telling? What stories are we telling? What trauma do we have that's preventing us from changing our behaviors and belief systems? So In 2014, I was elected president of my students association. I was the first black woman, first American in our history to be elected to this role. It was a highly politicized, highly political election campaign. And for those of you that don't know much about student unions in the world or in the UK, Edinburgh Universities is the oldest in the world. It is separate to the university as an actual union representing the interests of students around tuition fees, around living conditions, all sorts of things a union would do. But also it was highly political because a lot of people use this platform of being elected president or sabbatical officers, vice presidents of their student union as the start of their political career. And I didn't realize until I started what a massive uh, 
history and responsibility I was taking on. You know, it was a full-time job for a year. I had 150 staff. I became the chair of the board of a charity. I had to manage someone twice my age who was the chief exec of the company because we had a trading arm that had bars, catering outlets, events that made money. And then that money would be gift aided or donated to the charity that did all of the representative work. I worked with Scottish parliamentarians, MSPs, local councillors, MPs. I was involved in global conversations with other student leaders. It was a trial by fire in politics and representation. I had 25,000 people that I was accountable to technically students at the university. And in that year, as part of my election campaign, because I myself was feeling creatively stifled, I'd gone to university, as I mentioned, had not gone into the arts. A lot of my friends studying different things were running club nights, doing photography, running events. I was around so many creative people that I, I noticed also were not focusing on that for their career. And Edinburgh is a festival city, you know, it has some of the oldest festivals in the world. And I remember in 2012, the Edinburgh College of Art merged with the University of Edinburgh. And that was incredibly controversial because the art college had gone into financial difficulty and had been bailed out by the university. So there's a lot of tension around that. And when I was campaigning and speaking to students about what they wanted and their needs, we basically, I put forward the idea of a mini fringe festival, which became the Edinburgh Student Arts Festival, which I went to the principal of the university who was on the board of the Fringe Society. I got money and I set up this arts festival, basically motivated by my own sense of being creatively stifled. And I ran it for three and a half years with the help of other students, of other young people. And what we discovered through that process were the, all the barriers people were facing to being creative and being in the arts. And all of the barriers, if you don't have an art degree or an art college degree, if you don't know the right people, if you don't have access to venue spaces, if you don't have access to programmers and curators, how on earth are you going to start off in the festival? So it actually became a social enterprise that was focused on employability, work experience, and giving people access to the arts and creative industry who weren't just young but were of any age and were emerging into the sector to try and eliminate some of those barriers and meanwhile you know 2014 15 16 17 we were dealing with growing austerity in the UK growing inequality in the arts and creative industries there was a report that came out in 2018 called panic it's an arts emergency commissioned by create London and researchers at the universities of Sheffield and Edinburgh looking at the growing inequality in the arts and creative industries and essentially I accidentally launched myself into the arts as a festival producer but my whole kind of motivation behind that was I want to be around creative people that think outside of the box that are comfortable with uncertainty that are comfortable breaking the rules that are comfortable being themselves because if we're going to solve the climate crisis we need innovative people that are not stuck to the status quo. And I kind of have seen my work in the arts and creative industries as an apprenticeship to kind of understand how different art forms and artists work to kind of actually better understand how do we make change and disrupt the status quo. So it all kind of joins and comes together, the passion for the arts and film and social change and justice. So that was my first project in the arts, setting up and running my own festival. This is that is so huge as well. Like, I mean, what a what a place to learn. Like, what a what a way to be thrown into the fire. Um, that is quite something. Um, you know, I think community work like that is so essential, as you were saying, especially at that time and still now. You know, there's uh, 
a, a very large awareness of, of the difficulties of uh, of the different issues um, that people from from different kind of backgrounds and and the way all of that intersects as they try to enter this industry. That's really, as you were saying, when you're talking about your imposter syndrome and you know what you see um, on the charts as successful and where you are and how even if you do accomplish things, if you don't look like the image of success, it can be very difficult to align yourself with that. Um, when you did that festival, um, what what was the key takeaway from you in terms of what um, issues um, that emerging artists face in specifically in Scotland? I know that's a huge question, but it's a great one. And last night I was running a workshop for some artists and creatives on pitching. How do you pitch your idea to anyone, any audience? And I did a pitch that I used to do for the Edinburgh Student Arts Festivals for funders and to answer your question what I identified with our team was there are five key barriers people were facing to the arts and creative industries in Scotland and it gets wider but when it came to festivals you know especially for Edinburgh festivals it was you know high expense of participating in the arts making your own work you have to invest your own money and time not everyone has that um, the poor timing of the summer festivals meant people who were studying or working full-time or part-time couldn't really engage with that, that whole season, the Edinburgh International Film Festival, all sorts. And I think that's being addressed a bit more. But I think kind of the key issues, yeah, poor timing, lack of voice, you know, lots of things not being curated or programmed by emerging artists and creatives. So how do you get on that ladder? And I don't know if I like the analogy of a ladder, but we'll go with it. How do you get on that ladder? How do you get your work seen if you're not known? So if there are young people or emerging artists that aren't programming and doing that research and looking at who's making new film or who's not as um, well known, you can't get your films and your work programmed into festivals and events. So there's that whole issue of like, who's doing the curation, who's making the choice, who are the gatekeepers, who's, who are the tastemakers who are making these decisions. And there's so many challenges around applying for funding. You know, you have to be confident talking about your work and navigating the system, knowing how to pitch yourself, tell your story, talk about yourself well. And the other factor is this lack of legitimacy. So we've talked about the lack of voice and you know, emerging artists not curating and programming festivals and films, which I think happens quite well with the Glasgow Youth Film Festival, Glasgow Short Film Festival, Glasgow Film Festival. There are examples, Alchemy Arts. So there's some examples of people doing great work now and programming really changing and curation changing. Um, there is also, uh, there are also some other collectives I'll name later that are doing great work around this. But at the time, it was this lack of legitimacy. If you're not already established, then where do you go? And it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle, endless cycle. You know, the joke when we were applying for jobs at the time and people still do, which is to get an you know opening or starting role within a film organization, institution or arts organization or institution. Um, basically, uh, you had to have three years of work experience. So how were you going to do that or do anything if you didn't have the experience already to then continue on that ladder. So I think there's definitely a lot of challenges around that kind of in film and film industry. And 
I think that by creating festivals, pop-ups, social enterprises, people doing their own thing in this very DIY way, this energy, the punk rock energy and the social justice movement energy and the climate crisis movement energy of doing it yourself, that is one of the best ways to address these inequalities and lack of opportunities. As you said, you've done like kind of a lot of festival-based work and I think festivals is something that you know emerging filmmakers are so encouraged to enter like that has to kind of be if you don't have any connections you have to go to festivals and it is really difficult um there's a lot of competition um as you've worked on these festivals like how many entries do you usually see and how is it to kind of trim it down to its core like it must be really difficult um when you receive so much talent so when I was creative director of Fringe of Colour Film Festival with Jess Bruff, uh, who founded it, I was in that role and for the 2021 festival program, and that was the second year of the film festival. And I think we had about 50 to 60 entries, and we ended up uh, deciding and kind of paring it down to I think about 20. And I mean, it was a it was a big job watching all of those films. Um, but it was so important, Fringe of Colour Film Festivals for Black and POC filmmakers and Jess Bruff, who, who founded it, did this off the back of going to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival again, inspired in reaction to the Fringe and Summer Festivals in Edinburgh, another project like that, because they could not see work by Black and POC artists. Like they knew it was there, but there was no list, no way to find them. And then the other issue was because of people's understanding of the themes or their inherent racism or biases, reviewers would go to this work and not understand it or think it was, they wouldn't get the meaning of it and give these pieces of work, comedy, dance, music, theater, bad reviews or low reviews. So Jess decided to address that by creating a database so that people could go and see this work. And she'd, the, sorry, they'd have, you know, filmmakers and black and POC artists review all of this work. So they called it responses. And I'm mentioning this kind of background to Fringe of Colour Film Festival because when we made the decision about which films we were going to select, it was a question of who hadn't shown their films before at another festival. Uh, it was very much about how could we raise the voice of teams and film teams that were entirely Black and people of colour led. And also, how are these films not tokenistic and not only kind of showing trauma and suffering how could it be about joy about queerness about love about so many other really beautiful things so i think when it comes to filmmakers kind of trying to get their work seen because i'm working on a project now called almost which is called our movements our stories which is a short film that was made by director reese hollis and produced by Icky Arts, community interest company. And the producer there is called Adam Castle, who's a drag artist who runs a show called Pollyanna. And Reese Hollis is a drag artist based in London who runs the Queerdos Cabaret. They commissioned this piece, which was a response to a hidden black history at Stirling Castle in Scotland, which is a hidden history of Scotland about an, uh, King James VI in the 16th century sorry, 15th century, who wanted to have this performance at court and have this lion drag a chariot through court and decided it was too scary. So had a black man drag this chariot across courts, you know, and we're trying and we're trying to explore and work out what the relationship that man had to Scotland and to the king and to the monarchy. But anyway, this short film is beautifully made, uh, features Andrea Baker, an incredible mezzo-soprano opera singer who performed at the Munich Opera, 
Kiana Baker, a pole, an aerial dancer and artist, and Divine Tacinda, an incredible hip hop dancer and artist alongside Reese. And it's inspired by Midsummer Night's Dream because Shakespeare references this ridiculous incident at the castle about a lion being too scary in a Midsummer Night's Dream, right? So this film has been submitted to different film festivals. It'll debut at Glasgow Film Festival in the new year. And that whole process of commissioning the film, making it, getting funding for it, and then where is this film actually shown and debuted is such a big question because I see people going to smaller community groups, applying to festivals, launching it in partnership with um, businesses or shops that they think align with similar themes. Finisterre, for example, does a lot of films on water and surfing and a blue planet and the climate crisis. So I think that it's really about figuring out and aligning your film with the story it's trying to tell and thinking about partners that might support it or yes, applying to festivals and seeing if you'll get in. But I think there's a real question about are your themes in your film, the style of your film, the type of film you've made, does it align with the festival's values, what it's shown before, who are the judges, you know, there are lots of questions you can ask yourself. And earlier this year, I was in Bosnia at the Sarajevo Film Festival, and um, I was kind of going to some master classes with Michael Winterbottom, Jesse Eisenberg, I went to see some shorts. And it's so interesting how each of these festivals are curated, because they, you know, Sarajevo Film Festival is one of the best in the world and you know there's some really big names and I'm not saying best is equivalent to big names and popularity but it's definitely all of these film festivals are curated so differently and when I went to the launch of the Edinburgh International Film Festival this year they chose a film that was made by a Scottish filmmaker and who had grown up in Edinburgh and there was a real personal connection to that film After Sun and you know that you know that kind of relationship to the city directly. So I think those are a lot of factors that contribute to why people choose certain films for their festivals and for festival yeah. programs. Mm -hmm. No, and, and I do think, as you said, you know, considering if your work will find its most, will find most value in a festival, you know, it might be a different path. Um, and then to, to, to get into, you know, explore all the options. Um, but it's not an easy job and uh, you kind of just have to stick with it. Have you, like you were talking obviously about imposter syndrome and, and how you still fought through it, but have there been moments where you were like, I should not be doing this at all. I should completely uh, go into something else. Or was it so, you know, with you that you couldn't leave it? Yes, there have been moments. And what I noticed, so for example, getting elected president of my students association, setting up that arts festival, people will listen to those things and go, how did she do that? That sounds like a massive feat, really exhausting. And I would say, you know, for both of those things, I believed I could do it. Even if in the moment I was like, this is going to be hard. I told myself I'm, I'm going to do this thing. And, you know, we can talk about manifestation and affirmations and positive thinking and all sorts. But I do think when you say to yourself, I, I can do this and you say it in the past tense, it kind of can be a motivating factor. I'm not saying I didn't have mentoring, I didn't have help, I didn't have support, I didn't go for advice, I didn't work really hard, all those things are true. And there was this kind of statement of intent that allowed me, motivated me to move forward. 
I have faced so much in the arts and creative industries that have put me off it. So I really think there's a lot. And so when I started off in the arts and creative industries, you heard I set up my own thing. That was a very DIY approach. It was a social enterprise. I was not engaging with big funders or big arts institutions. I didn't have to compete with the, the kind of institutionalized part of the film industry or the art sector. But as I kind of moved on in my life and career and was appointed to senior management roles, chief exec roles, was moving across different arts organizations, I ended up being in more senior positions at a really young age because of this festival launching me into the arts and the access I had to the right people and support through my role at the University Students Association and my contact and proximity to senior management at the university. I'm very aware of that privilege and proximity to power, right? But I've just seen so much abuse of power, so many people staying in roles in festivals and arts organizations because they're holding on to a good salary, not because they should necessarily still be there. Everyone went to school together, is partnered with each other, is related to one another. It's really corrupt in that sense. And I think it's because Scotland's a really small country. And I think being exposed to that and having to whistleblow or point out abuses of power, I've become a bit of a provocateur and troublemaker and I'm happy to be a troublemaker but being positioned in that way as a black woman is really exhausting because as soon as things kicked off in 2020 with Black Lives Matter and I started talking more about anti-racism and being good al a good ally I think people didn't like that type of provo provocation they were happy when I was talking about young people and emerging artists and the barriers people face to the arts outside of the central belt of Scotland. As soon as it became about racism and holding arts institutions accountable and the corruption around decisions about which arts organizations and artists get money, that I think became hard, a harder pill for the arts sectors to swallow. And back to your question of, did I ever get to a point of going, this is too much? Yes. I think in 2020, I was bullied out of my job at an arts organization. And I got to a point where I was like, you know, Work doesn't love you back. And I've been really, for my entire adult life, unlearning these really unhealthy work habits of growing up in the US in the mid you know, to late 90s and, well, early 90s through the 2000s, right? It's like late stage capitalism, overwork, productivity, burnout, this whole competition, the rat race, American culture being very in your face, being very good at, you know, selling yourself right because that's what the culture is based on and there are lots of beautiful things about American culture but work culture I think is messed up I think mean, the real issues and growing up in Washington DC which is such a politicized city where people are there to make positive change but as politicians they're constantly selling themselves to other people and the subtext of most interactions in Washington DC when you meet someone is hello, how are you? What do you do? And what can you do for me? That is literally the subtext of most interactions, right? And I find that narcissistic approach to life really exhausting. And so given that I've been unlearning perfectionism, overachievement, overwork, this like really hyper competitive way of living, that of course has been like, you know, really supported me and voted well for success and achievement and the arts and everything I've done. But there's this kind of juxtaposition against that which is this opposite reaction which is slowing down and not being rushed and not being in the public eye and not constantly being the provocateur so I made a decision in 2020 early 2021 when I joined Fringe of Colour Film Festival and, and did some work for the Black Queer Travel Guide and joined the We Are Here Scotland team 
that I would work in community with groups that I identified with and step away from big institutions and do work to support people that is genuinely motivated by people wanting to collaborate instead of compete. And I think there's more of an energy and spirit in Scotland of collaboration over competition, but you know, austerity and the climate crisis and economic crisis and cost of living crisis means people are still competing for resources. And I do think there is enough to go around, but we're still in this capitalist mindset of scarcity. And because of that, I have stepped back from the arts, but what I've done is I've revisited that younger self and inner child and I'm making my own work. So instead of spending all this time producing, facilitating other artists, helping them with their careers, helping them think about their finances, helping them promote their work, which is what I've done for my entire career, facilitate other people's creativity. That was getting me to a point of feeling, again, still stifled creatively. So I've now had my own solo exhibition. I made a moving image piece that uh, I debuted at my friend's gallery in April. I performed it a few weeks ago at a cabaret show at the Fruit Market Gallery and at the McRobert and Sterling. I intend to write a short series and I'm thinking it might be TV. We'll see about my father's life. So I'm just kind of focusing more on things that inspire me in my own creative muses and alongside that I do a lot of work in the oh sorry for that notification and alongside that I do a lot of work in the kind of spiritual healing witchy energetic psychic community which can get very weird and wonderful and wacky in the best way so I think I've now decided to re-engage with the arts and creative industries in a less harmful way because like many industries it can cause a lot of harm and I think there's a real lack of responsibility and accountability to people in power making decisions from politicians to head of arts and organizations but I think where there's hope is we process all of these experiences through making arts and film and so I have gotten to a point of it's too much and I've kind of refocused my energy on myself and my own creative practice and the stories I want to tell and I've stepped back from trying to make change in the arts and raise awareness around inequalities and change policy which is what I tried to do for the first eight years of my career. I, I really admire you making that change uh, for the past two years and what would you say has been the most rewarding part about this refocus? The most rewarding part has been collaborating with and working with people that I respect and being able to experiment with what my creative voice is now. Because in the past, I would have said I was a musician or a painter um, or a multimedia artist. And I've always loved films. So being able to experiment with that now and make my own films and make my own work has been the most rewarding. And it's been a healing journey and a healing process. So I'm just so excited and so grateful for whatever comes. And what I've noticed is as soon as you make a decision, things start to align and line up for you. So all of a sudden now I'm working with film festivals and working with filmmakers. That intention that I've set, which is I want to make this happen, has allowed me to work with the Glasgow Film Theatre, with African Motion Film Festival, with the BFI, and all sorts of things are coming together in a way I would have never expected. So it's just the excitement of possibility and experimentation and play and fun and making work and telling stories that are important there's a lot of storytelling I do which is about the unspoken the taboo the things that we shy away from death 
grief, mourning, transformation, trauma, but it's also fun and beautiful things. But I think for me, it's been a real process of um, trying to support and help other people as well through the stories I'm telling, not in a really naff way of, I believe I'm going to change the world and there's nothing wrong with that, but in a way of maybe kind of showing light and directing energy to things that people normally don't feel comfortable or confident talking about. Um, maybe kind of opening up the space for us to have more public discourse and dialogue and conversation about these topics. That's beautiful. And I'm so glad to hear it as well. Um, because, you know, as we were talking about, I think this once you start to kind of get your foot in the door, you start to realize the amount of sacrifices people who are successful here have had to put in and sometimes I think it is okay to say that is not what I want to do and this is not good for me and then instead you know um, shift um, into to, to where you you're supposed to be and, and find value in that um, and kind of microscaling impact instead of going you know I want my movie to be the number one and I want everyone to you know, talk about this, but to actually get into, um, yeah, as you said, the community and people and be able to talk with them and not just rearrange. So it's been amazing talking with you. And before we go off, you know, you said, I mean, how many movies, if you had to take a guess, how many movies do you think you watched this year? Do you keep track? Oh my goodness, I do keep track. And there's also TV series in there. But what is this, October 26th? Okay, I think I've probably watched at least kind of 75 to 80 this year. It might be in the 100s. <laughs> yes, yeah. Because that's what I do uh, most evenings <laughs> and weekends. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even want to ask like how many movies you think you've ever watched um, because that number would be so high. Uh, but clearly you made your way around some movies. It's like... You know, a general understanding. Yeah. Um, so I want to, you know, uh, hear a little bit about, you know, movies uh, that have left an imprint on you. So my first question would be a movie that's inspired you, perhaps recently, uh, perhaps not. So there's a documentary I saw recently. Well, oh, there are two, but I'll, I'll stick to this one. Um which was the Leonard Cohen documentary on Hallelujah, the song that he wrote. I know it didn't come out this year, but I think it came out a few years ago. And it was very much about his writing process of taking seven years to write one song and the fact that it has hundreds of verses and the versatility of that song, but also its claim to fame and prominence is a little posthumous, right? And Shrek contributed to that film, but it was so much about his spiritual journey, his writing journey, the other artists that have contributed to making that song such an iconic one. And that has had a massive impact on me this year and really inspired me because when it comes to this whole notion of being an artist, you know, there's so many theories around artisticness, creativity, talent, uh, you know, how you need to nurture it and practice it. And I've gone through real deserts in my life of not focusing on my creative practice. I've always written, but there are times when I'm not as active in that space. And to think that someone could spend seven years crafting something and it goes through peaks and troughs and changes and it's amorphous is something that really inspired me and really resonates with me because, you know, Rainier and Maria Rilke talked about this in poetry of, 
you know, exploring life through our questions and maybe just by living, we'll live the questions instead of answering them. And I think there's something really beautiful about something evolving and your creative practice being whatever you want it to be. It doesn't need to look or feel a certain way. It doesn't have to be consistent. You don't have to spend your whole life doing it. Leonard Cohen, you know, started his music career when he was in his late forties. So that's something that really inspired me. Great. Um, what about a movie or show that's your guilty pleasure? Oh, there's so many guilty pleasures. Oh, no. oh goodness. My recent one is Too Hot to Handle, which is a TV series that I'm sure that you've seen or heard of. And I think it's genius because it's a TV show that's critiquing every single dating show that's ever existed. And it's so clever the way it's laid out. I don't want to give too much away if you haven't seen it, but it's almost like making fun of critiquing every every single dating show that's ever existed but there's a little bit more to it and I was really it's a guilty pleasure but I was really struck by how well done and how clever it is mm-hmm. yeah um now this might be difficult to pick but is there a movie that you'd love to experience for the first time again if you had to choose one and you you could what, which one would it be I feel like I haven't, not that I need to, but there's so many films that are not all by cis white men or featuring cis white men. And I feel like we'll get to that in a minute. But if there's a movie I can experience again, which doesn't, which actually still falls into this category, but that says more about the film industry than anything else, is Call Me By Your Name. That's a film, I mean, look, so many people love that film for many reasons. And we know that, you know, when it comes to this, the cast of Call Me By Your Name, Army Hammer, you know, Timothy Chalamet, who really, that was, you know, such an important film for him. There's something about the way Call Me By Your Name communicates this nostalgia and beauty and slowness around the 80s. And though I wasn't alive in the 80s, you'll, you'll watch interviews with uh, Luca Guadagnino that kind of directed it. And there's something so nostalgic and summery and beautiful about that film. I watched it on a flight from the US to back to Scotland, to Edinburgh. And I just sobbed for like 20 minutes after that film because it was one of the most kind of beautiful cinematic um, experiences I've had in a very long time so that is a film I'd love to watch again for the first time to really experience that reaction and beauty mm-hmm. yeah no that is that's a really good one yeah the, and and I'm sure like if you watch on an airplane you'd like to see it maybe on a bigger screen um, but I mean even the fact that you can watch something on an airplane and and it can take you that way uh, I think it says something about the movie doesn't it because you're in such a very specific scenario with so much going on um the fact that it's able to enchant you that should say it all now if the little girl who was in a rock band could see you right now how do you think she'd react what a question I think she would be proud, but I think there'd be a, a part of her that's like, where's where's all of your punk rock? Where'd it go? And I think I channel that energy and the work that I do. But as I said at the beginning, you know, that 
that time in my life was the beginning of my perpetual weirdening. And I plan on getting more weird. And by that, I mean just leaning into the things that I love, that are challenging for people that are a bit kind of on the fringe of things, because that is what I've always done, sometimes reluctantly. And it's something that I'm coming full circle back to is something that I just love and embrace. And it's just me. So I think the little girl would be like, yes, you know, you have done the things you love to do. You've worked with great people. You've made great art. You've been to incredible places. You've traveled. You've seen the world. You'll continue to. But I think that little girl would challenge me some more to be like, where's where's the inner punk? Where she needs to be outside. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I mean. I mean. I. I'd. Li- I'd like to see it. I'd like to see it. What's. Um. What's next for you, Brianna? Um. What. What are you planning to do? And. Uh, will we see some. Some punk rock in it? You will. So I am writing a book. I've signed a book contract. I cannot reveal the title, and I can't say too much about it. But it'll be hopefully out in the world by the beginning of 2024 and it's a very punk book it's looking at disruption and how do we how do we disrupt in good ways that's as much as I can say but that is coming on the horizon and that's the project I've been working on behind the scenes since the end of May exciting congratulations that's that's pretty huge um and so exciting all right you know what we like to do here is obviously highlight women's stories and women's voices. Now, can you give a shout out? And obviously it's so difficult because I know, I mean, every single woman in this industry inspires me. Uh, but is there someone, um, whether you know them personally or from a distance, uh, a woman in the industry you'd like to give a shout out to? I'm going to shout out to two, if that's okay. And um, really inspired by... You let it slide. So really inspired by Tamiwa Fularonzo, who has been producing a film called Maud, which is going to launch and premiere tomorrow night. And has been working on that with Natasha Ruona. And that's exploring the hidden history of a Black queer artist based, born and raised in Scotland. And I think that the two of them as a duo are doing some incredible work curating film moving image and raising the voices of black POC queer artists, especially women and people of other genders in Scotland. So I really need to give a shout out to those two. Amazing. Um, And where can people find you after this? Where should they go? You can find me at Brianna Pagato on Instagram or Twitter. And I've got a website. I cannot remember the very long website link, but my link tree is in both of those places and you can find more out about me there. Yes. Yes. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been the best way to start my morning here. I feel like my cold's cleared up as well. Look at you. Yay! <laughs> um, thank <laughs> you for uh, for sharing your story. Uh, it's been really inspiring for me to hear, and I'm sure it's been the same for everyone listening. Um, but I'll let you have the final word. Is there anything you want to say to whoever's listening? I would say that no one really knows what they're doing, and that's the beauty of being a creative person. So if you ever feel like you shouldn't do something because you don't know, I would say go for it. And 
always, always follow your heart and your creative inspirations and allow your creativity to unfold. <clears throat> Oops, losing my voice. Allow your creativity to unfold because it doesn't always reveal itself in one go. So I'd say stick with it and, and give yourself the space to explore. Celebrate good times. Come on, Sláinte babes. It is the last round table for the season, so we are having a wonderful, fun, silly little goofy drinky to celebrate a wonderful <laughs> season of accomplishment and conversation. So welcome exactly. back. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. You nailed it. Did you have your nails done? I did. It was a gift. They look nice. And I needed it really bad. Hey, congratulations. My aunt was like, yeah. oh, it's just like a late, like, um, Reyes gift. So she, thank you. Mm -hmm. I'm so, I love having nails done. I love them. It makes me so happy. <laughs> Sometimes I just look at them and I'm just like, <laughs> mm -hmm. makes me so happy. <laughs> well, first off, what are you drinking? I am drinking from Lidl. I am drinking Hortus Gin rhubarb ginger but like the soft drink one with the ginger thing because it tastes like juice and it's yummy and very cheap so it's yummy very nice a little goes a long way <laughs> i uh am drinking uh i just put a lot of uh rum in my glass and then filled it out with coke nice so there we go. Very nice. Cheers. I'll give I'll do a little ASMR for the people listening, and I'm putting it up to the mic so they can hear the little. <laughs> there you go, people. We're actually ASMR artists. This is what the next season of this podcast is going to be. Oh it's just Mine the, is so bubbly. All the ASMR yeah. you're gonna get from me is just silent burps, crinkling. <laughs> <laughs> lovely but that's sometimes that's what we gotta give but yes uh this is the last round table because this is the last episode of the season um it's been amazing it's episode 70 which is crazy to me just like in general obviously nice it's the end of the season um but also it's episode 70 that's that's a lot of episodes yeah you're frozen like this and then i can hear like every other word you're saying uh okay um should we maybe try wait let me try and turn our turn the camera off yeah let me try let me do this okay well it's a shame i won't be able to see your beautiful face but that just means i'll have to listen to you more <laughs> it's like a real podcast <laughs> For us. <laughs> I know. It's like a podcast for us. We are, it's like we are just, yeah, our existence is limited to this podcast, which is quite dystopian. We're just like little voices created solely <laughs> for this purpose. Well, well, well. Now that I can't communicate with my eyes, um, yes. <laughs> okay. Sorry. God, I'm all over the place because... I've had yeah, okay. probably five double shots of espresso today. Oh my god. Um, 
I haven't oh eaten God. all that much, but I did just have like a lot of hash brown waffles mm. while watching a very long episode. Like I didn't, I didn't realize that The Last of Us, like the episodes are like an hour and 20 minutes. <laughs> we were like, oh, we should start watching it now because we have like an hour and a half until I'm doing this call. Uh, and then we put it on and I thought it was going to be like 40 minutes or something. And I was just like there falling asleep because I'm crashing from all the espresso and from all the carbs. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I have to go on <laughs> in like 10 minutes. And I like I couldn't pay attention either. It was I was struggling. And then I was like, fuck. And we had oh my agreed gosh. to drink as well. So now i got to add some rum into like whatever is going on in my body right now. So if I'm a bit feral tonight, this is on you, Lauren. I apologize. I am ill. So if I'm feral, it's because I am dying. <laughs> we'll just no. leave it at that. No. It's a crazy last episode. We're just kind of, we're just kind of like barely making it, aren't we? <laughs> making it? No. Barely making it women in film. <laughs> Barely making it women podcasting. <laughs> oh my god. That is the rebrand. That is actually what we should call the roundtable part. Barely making yes, it. Barely podcasting. podcasting. Yeah. Oh, that's Barely so podcasting. <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> Sorry, I hate myself so much. Oh my god. I think we're gonna been... have to edit so much. No, I'm going to leave all of this in. <laughs> this is... We're revealing our true selves. <sighs> Sorry, I'm just out of breath because I can't breathe, so... Oh, no! Why can't you breathe? It, I'm giving it... Well, just because, like, my nose is, like, really stuffy, so I'm just, like... <sighs> so, and I'm talking, so it's just, like... Like, weird breathing. I guess I'll, I'll talk while you catch your breath. Thank you. Um... <laughs> Listen, guys, she's giving this her all. But yeah, it's been it's been a great season. I'm very proud of the episodes we've put out. Um, yes. I'm very happy with the different topics. What moment of this season do you want to reflect on? Just because you're the one doing these interviews, you know, you're the one that's been a little more, like, involved in it. So, like, what do you want to say about, you know, what your time? What do I want to say? Yeah. Um all your hard work. Hmm. Thank you. All my hard work. Well, I'm I'm trying to think. Like actually let let me just pull up like our episodes here mm. so I can just jog my memory because we did start like now, this is coming out on the first of February, but we started recording in October. So it's been it's been a while. Yeah. Um, this episode, I will say there's a very specific reason I picked it as the last one. This episode today with Brianna Bagato is probably um, what I've strived to do with every single interview um, for this podcast, like from the beginning, um, is really just talk with an amazing woman who has a relationship with film and works with it. And hear her life story and hear also the way that she described her life through the movies and pinpointed specific moments in her lives to the movies that were coming out at that time to the movies she was watching to the movies that were making an impact on her that were imprinting on her. I thought was so beautiful and exactly like kind of it was just my dream episode and so I'm incredibly proud 
of this specific episode. Um, not because I think I did anything unique, but just because Brianna was a perfect guest. Um, and she so truly loves movies, but also not uh, without uh, seeing their faults and specifically the industry's faults. Towards the end, something she talked about that really spoke to me was how um, she, for the majority of her career in the industry, has worked to try and change um, the systemic issues in the industry, but also how incredibly exhaustive that has been for her and how it's almost pushed her out of loving film, even though it is like something she has such a profound connection to. And so in order to stay in this art form, she decided that instead of trying to change a system that is age old, we need to create a new one, create not a system like that, but like a, a, a different form of appreciation and, and relationship. And that's like how I have felt so much about specifically like awards and things like that and these very prestigious organizations in the industry um like look at the oscars <laughs> this year it's something that i feel like we're always talking about needs to change and things like that but at a certain point i'm just i'm so tired of celebrating the first this and the first yeah. that when that shouldn't even like I feel so weird about celebrating those things as well like it's not um it doesn't feel like something that should be celebrated but rather like shamed I feel like we tend to celebrate it because we want to uplift the person who's been awarded mm -hmm. instead of realizing how fucking shit it is that it took what 20 years for a queer actor to be nominated for playing a queer character yeah like that's insane <laughs> Like, that's not something we should celebrate. Like, I'm just... Like, it's good that that has happened now, but it shouldn't It shouldn't have taken that long. Yeah. And them simply doing that as well and acknowledging um, people profoundly and beyond qualified and excellent people in the arts of different backgrounds is not enough to erase um, how they have erased um people mm -hmm. um in the past through awards and things like that so anyway it, it was very inspiring to hear rihanna talk about how a different solution maybe um to all of this because that's kind of what this whole podcast has been about as obviously amplifying um women's voices in the film industry and in film um i think initially it started out very much um, in the nature of wanting to um, bring down a system and wanting to kind of hear um, the true reality of these horrible circumstances that a lot of people work in and that's still true that's still something that we want to give a platform to um, but more so, I've really found a community and I've really found uh, an embrace uh, and a focus on kind of uplifting uh, each other here and focusing our energy on that and focusing our energy on supporting each other instead of focusing our energy on 
something that will not listen <laughs> and kind of just switching it. Um, so that's been very nice. <laughs> that's wonderful. It's been an interesting journey. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. In my experience, I think that the most lovely part of this has been talking to you and doing the roundtables with you. Oh. <laughs> Just because I love talking to you, and I love talking to you about <laughs> this. So, you know, it's just been, a, like, a fun, um, it's just been, like, a fun experience, you know? Like, like how often, you know, do, you know, you get to get, you know, do you get, oh my god, I'm having a seizure. How often do you get to speak to your friends over, like, a passion <laughs> that you both have in common, and, you know, that one of them has, like, interviewed people for and worked super hard on? It's just, like something very rewarding just with that you know so it's absolutely lovely no, I, I, yes i'm so happy we decided to do these rounds yeah. this season it's been so much fun um i'm just very grateful that you've joined me in this oh well i'm grateful to be included what's been your favorite thing to talk about oh my favorite thing to talk about um i want to say the teen wolf discussion was really funny um I don't know I mean I love like listening to you like talk basically just because like I feel like I think these things but I don't really like dwell on it too much um but then like you kind of put it into words so it is like just my own podcast to like hear you kind of like explain it a little bit um and it is like super enlightening just because like like I said like I watch these movies or shows and I'm just like thinking these things like as I watch it but I don't really dwell on it too much so it's nice to like hear you like go into depth Mm. and then also it's just it's just fun like talking about like just the dumbest things on here sometimes like I don't know it's just super (laughs) fun because like I feel like it's also fun to just talk about like you know enjoying films and tv shows you know it's not it's not always like about how horrific the industry actually is or you know this and that it's just like oh i liked this movie and it's just teen wolf you know so. the fucking running oh i want to say god. just like I will never no that's literally like what i'm thinking about oh, right now oh god what even what episode you i have no idea what episode it was that we talked about teen wolf me neither but it's like yeah and i i really enjoyed like our conversation on like um diversity of love I thought that was... Um, oh, yes. I forgot about that one. Very good. And that one was, was beautiful. It was. And, yeah. Especially because we are not, like... <laughs> and people are not going to be surprised to hear this. We are not scripting out these roundtables. <laughs> no. <laughs> we show up, like, five minutes before, and we're like, well, what's on your mind? <laughs> talk about just... The most silly little things. We do talk about the most silly little things, but most of the time they do end up with, I was going to say, profoundity. That is not a word. Uh, what is, <laughs> is there a word for the concept with profoundness. of profoundness? Profoundness, is that a word? Is that a yeah, real word? Yeah, I'm pretty sure okay. it is. I'm pretty sure profoundness Pro- is a real word. Profound. You're making me think it's not. Ness. Yes, it is. It is. I was I just, I oh. I fucking told you. I the told intellectual you. ability to penetrate deeply into ideas. Jesus Christ. Ew, I don't like that. No, I don't, don't, like don't that use one. the word penetrate. Just don't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Christ. Um, but yeah, I think it's been uh, a great season. I'm kind of looking over like the different episodes and like obviously someone's where I'm like Jesus I'm, I'm amazed I mean like Corinna Viston who 
used to be the director of creative and digital content at Marvel and is now the head of originals at View Philippines. An amazing woman doing amazing stuff. And I just, uh, I'm still like, damn, I, I actually got to talk with her, you know? Um, yeah. And I loved thinking back to that episode, how she also talked about how she, for 10 years worked for Marvel and was very success and was very successful there. She won several awards for her work um, at Marvel there. But she knew that this that there was something more for her. Uh, and that actually meant leaving Hollywood. Uh, it meant returning to the Philippines and focusing on um, producing stories about the Filipino, voice i respect it so much when people are able to make those decisions because i'm sure that wasn't an easy decision to make either when you know that you have a good job when you know that you have uh, when you know that you're part of like the biggest franchise in the world um but that there's something else um that you also need to do and then actually going out and doing that um it's beautiful. Yeah, uh, Rachel O'Regan, who's uh, a local playwright here in Edinburgh, but she's, you know, she's a playwright. She's not uh, in film at all. And, like, there were a couple people who were like, oh, like, when we announced the lineup, they were like, what's a playwright doing here? But she's a screenwriter. She's a, no, she's a manuscript writer, and she's now going into television writing as well. And we were able to kind of talk about what is essentially the birth of cinema which is theater like the very core of it is the same this performative art I think this has really just been um a season with a, a, an unknown like not a, a, an uh, not like what's a word for like non-purpose an accidental focus <laughs> on um finding your expertise listening to your gut not giving up, but also acknowledging when you need to change the environment you're in in order to keep loving what it is that you do. Because I think mm. that's a trap that a lot of people fall into. And we kind of talked about this when we talked about the menu, is that there is an idea of perfection, especially when it comes to something like filmmaking that we strive to. There's an idea of success but that is most likely not going to make you happy. But there are other ways you can keep doing this stuff and have it be fulfilling without it having be all filling and like take over your life. We saw that with um, with Louise Say uh, from last week who started out as a naval officer <laughs> and is now a high-end drama producer. We saw it with Carmen Thompson who used to study astrophysics and then realized that she needed to help amplify African movies and help them be distributed across the world, specifically in the UK, and help them find their audiences. Mm. Um, we saw that with Brianna, who knew that she had to change her focus. We saw that with, with Mary Claire Bowser, who uh, has worked uh, within set decoration for 10 years, but then realized that she needed to also make a slight change and start focusing on the environmental impact in the industry and see what she could do there. Um, and it's really been about, mm. yeah, stories of careers and craft that aren't tied to this idealized picture of success, uh, but rather to our emotional and passionate 
uh, connection with film, uh, like Nisha Platzer made an incredible documentary where she reconnected with her late brother who died of suicide. And the way that she talked, I think that's probably one of the most, like, when we get to the craft, really, when she talked about how she um, actually filmed with his ashes and saw the beautiful images that created. Yeah, there's something just so guttural about that, uh, something so instinct um, that I found just stunning. Um, and I, there's been moments of these in every single interview, and I'm just endlessly grateful for every person who's been on and who's shared their life so openly. It's amazing, <laughs> and it just like has reinforced mm. so much about kind of uh, the need to listen and support I don't know, there's just something um, incredible about the openness I've received from um, the community of women who work or love film simply. Um, yeah. and, and kind of the, the how, how much we all want to connect with one another. Um, and that's just really been reinforced uh, in this season. So just very proud of every single episode. Yes, you should be. Uh... Thank As you. you should be. <laughs> of course, my horse. Yeah, and like also just like again, I feel like a lot of these episodes have really kind of wound like the, the moral of the story is uh, focus on community, don't focus on um, the industry. <laughs> focus on community mm -hmm. in terms of who you want to see your films, in terms of who you want to connect with film over in terms of what you want your film to do, like saying Nisha Platzer, it was not only a movie that uh, provided healing for her, but also for her entire, the entire community around her who also yeah. uh, lost Josh, her brother. Um, <coughs> and for Carmen Thompson, who worked so much um, to, to distribute and help audiences connect with movies that are not amplified that are not shown that are not advertised by the mainstream film industry is something that is also just so important and again just like going moving away from wanting to take over um the institution of of the film industry institution but instead just yeah uh doing the work that really matters what we can do right now and and hopefully build something new from that instead it's just really yeah. uh again unconsciously been weaved into every single episode we're you know we've done 70 episodes now um this is our second season with bonnie and bra and uh this is not i don't i doubt that this is the end of this project um and everyone who's listening the people who started listening last week and for the people who started listening two years ago um thank you for being on this journey with us and this is not the end of this project i'm sure um if you want to stay updated i would encourage you to follow bonnie and bra on their socials i'll link that down below as well just for any future updates but for now um i think you and i both need a good break as well we have a lot yes. of things going on um is there anything like what what do you uh what are you what's going on in your life in the next three months lauren oh my god i don't know um <laughs> uh, i've decided that i think february is going to be 
like I just really started settling in where I'm living like really I mean I've been physically living here for like a little over a month so I just kind of need to chill out on having everything together so I think now that I know like what's starting to work for me I need to start like working towards that um, but hopefully I can, you know, start organizing some of, like, my new projects and stuff and see what I can whip up within the next three months. So I'm excited just to see what what she's up to, <laughs> whatever that may be. <laughs> While also, of course, being a very uh, diligent law student. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> I am trying. You're doing great. You are doing great. I'm tired. I feel like it's not even... I mean, I've also been sick. I haven't been that tired. I'm just sick, to be honest. You're never, uh, like, you're just never left alone, are you? It's jet no, lag, it's sickness, I'm it's your attacked foot. constantly. Yeah. Mm. It's because you know, the universe knows that if you didn't have challenges, fuck. I'd be too powerful. I would be too powerful. And they're right. Just trying to slow you down. They're um, right, because yeah. I used to be undefeatable. <laughs> I used to be undefeatable. And you will be. You will be. You just you just need a little bit more resistance. Yes. It's your hero's yes. journey. <laughs> oh my god. Stop. Uh, I don't know how if I can handle it. But it's okay. I am gonna... It's the end of the month. Like, literally. It, tomorrow well, yes. is a new day. It, it new, is. New Mm-mm. whatever. It is. It'll be... Perfect. Yes. And we've we've finished this. Thank you so much for all you've done, for all the support. I, I sometimes feel like I'm going crazy because I'm just like sitting here and I'm just writing <laughs> up questions and then I'm talking with people and then I'm editing and I'm like a total gremlin. Um, so it's very nice to just kind of uh, talk with another human being that I know and who I love. Um, yes, thank you. <laughs> Keeping me sane. Uh, one day at a time yes indeed and also you know again we're gonna take a bit of a break with this uh but we have some other plans you and i um i don't know how people can be notified about that because both of our instagram profiles are private and none of our <laughs> <Because> business <we laughs> are... <laughs> i know it's just like i i used to be like oh my god i definitely had like my phase when i was younger where like i wanted to buy instagram followers we all want, but everybody wanted to be an influencer at some point. It's awful. And I'm so glad I'm not. Yeah. Like, it I'm so glad. so fun, it, but. It, it does. Yeah, me too. But I'm also, like, a very anxious individual. <laughs> but I don't know. Like, I've been really strict about, like, keeping my followers to, like, people. Like, I get a bunch of, like, follow requests occasionally. And, you know, I just, like, like don't let them, like, get out of my house. Yeah. Like, no. Because it's, like, I post a lot, and it's just, like, dumb pictures of, like, my day-to-day activities. And it's just, like, I know that, like, the people who follow me either don't care enough to judge me or don't judge me at all. So it's just, like, this is for me. Like, it really is for me. So I keep it that way. It's a safe space. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it'll stay that way. (laughs) It'll stay the way. Piss off. Don't find me. You're not. Don't find me. Don't try finding me. Yeah, don't even try. Don't even try. You will only be rejected. Um, yeah, literally. <laughs> but no, like when we do, we we ha- we are cooking up something um, that is not meth. Um, sorry, I'm watching Breaking Bad right now. Every time people talk about <laughs> no cooking, no one would I'm ever like... assume that. <laughs> I know. You but like, saying but... <laughs> that makes it seem like we are. <laughs> 
Uh, the ice cream truck is coming. Um, yeah. No, they stopped behind me earlier. It scared me. What? Really? Oh my god. Yeah, because, like, I think they did, like, a U-turn and just, like, wanted to park on the side of the road. But I was standing because I was waiting to cross. And then they just, like, waited and turned their like, little music on. looks like and a customer. It's, it's, it's not even, like, an ice cream truck. It's just, like, a van. Like, a windowless van, a van with two with, ice cream cones. <laughs> and I was just like, um, no, thank you. And I just, like, ran away. I, I ran away because I was like, ha, oh, no, hard pass. Thank you. Oh, choose life. I was like, they're uh, gonna open those doors and throw me inside. No. Oh God, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yes, what I was gonna fucking say. My God, I need to focus. Um, is that we are working on some stuff because Lauren, as you know, uh, is a law student uh, with a big ass brain, a big juicy brain. And I am a recent criminology student. Hooray. With another big juicy brain. So juicy. Um, Thick and juicy. And and I think there's this, and I don't know for the people listening, if there's much of a crossover between wanting to support women in film and being interested in law, crime and archaeology. I don't know. (laughs) But there might be because, hey, you and I, we are the crossover. So there might be more people out there. And in be. that case, you know, you're just going to have to follow our dead account at Making It Women and Fun on Instagram. And I'll post a little thing when this says up. It'll happen sometime this year. Maybe in two yeah. months, maybe in six months. Either way, it'll be Whenever smashing. Whenever we're ready. Yes. Yeah. So if you do want to get an update on that at any point, you should follow that account. Don't try to mm-hmm. find us. Do not try to Individually. find us. Individually. Yes. We do not exist. We are, as no, I, we as we as was established in the beginning of this episode, we are mere voices um, born your for this podcast. You are uh, making this up. You are delusional. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> we are voices in your head. Um, we do not exist. You cannot follow us on Instagram. Um, it's all a lie. Yes. But there you go. Um, okay, one minute to do the outro here. Thank you, every single one, Lauren, all of our guests, everyone at Bonnie and Brian Ellis Film. Thank you myself for doing an excellent job. You're welcome. Um, it's been amazing. And now I am a little bit tipsy because I put too much oil in my Coke and now I need to go edit this. But I love you all. Um, and I just want to say thank you. And thank you. And you cannot find us anywhere. Nope. We are. We're gonna exist. gaslight you. I don't exist. We don't exist. No, you're no. making this up. Thank you for listening to this episode of Making It Women in Film, a podcast produced by Bonnie and Bra and LS Films. 